purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their health care practitioner before attempting any treatment. Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Paul Rayburn, is chief media critic for the night science journalism tracker site at MIT. He's the author of Acquainted with the Night, A Parent's Quest to Understand Depression and Bipolar Disorder in His Children. He's a regular guest on NPR and writes the About Fathers blog for Psychology Today. Paul Rayburn has been the science editor of Business Week and the Associated Press, is the past president of the National Association of Science Writers, and his work has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, Discover, and Scientific American. He's here today on Health Watch to talk about his latest book, Do Fathers Matter? What Science is Telling Us About the Parent We've Overlooked. Welcome to Health Watch, Paul Rayburn. Glad to be here. Thank you. Well, let's start out with the question, Do Fathers Matter? What, what is the story of how you became captivated by this question? Well, my previous book that you uh, were nice enough to mention was about um, some problems some of my kids had uh, during adolescence with depression and bipolar disorder. They're doing much better now, but we had some tough times there, and I wrote about that and a lot of the failures of the medical system and uh, how hard it was to figure out what to do and get a correct diagnosis. And when I finished that book, I thought, you know, I was interested in what fathers do for their kids uh, aside from helping uh, deal with illnesses and just more broadly, you know, what fathers contribute. Um, we all walk around, I think, with notions in our head about, you know, about our experiences with our own fathers and uh, those of us who are fathers and our experiences with our kids. And, you know, the idea here was to say, okay, well, we all think we know a lot about fathers. What does the science really show? So I wanted to cut through any myths and misconceptions we might have to see what we really know. Well, it was interesting at the beginning of the book, you, you go back to the 1970s when psychologists basically didn't think fathers contributed anything other than uh, financial security uh, through the workplace. But you point out that there was little evidence at the time of what fathers contributed, but there was also just little evidence at all about whether they were relevant or irrelevant. Why, why do you think that that fathers up until recently have been so much less studied than mothers? Well, I, I think we were, I, I don't know, and, you know, I, there's not, that's not a question you can answer with research, but my theory is, my idea is, that we were a victim of our economy. And what I mean by that is, if you go back, way back uh, to the 19th century, uh, nobody questioned the relevance of fathers. Fathers ran the farm or they ran the shop in town. Um, and they were vitally important to the family's welfare. And furthermore, the kids spent a lot of time with the father as soon as they were old enough to help in the fields or the barn or clean out the troughs or whatever they do on farms. Um, they would spend a lot of time with their fathers. And um, so that changed, you know, with the industrial era when fathers went off to factories. And I think we forgot. Um, we got so used to the fact that fathers were away all day, many fathers, and mothers were home all day with the kids. It's just, see, we thought, well, of course mothers are more important. They're the ones home with the kids. You know, how, how hard can that be? But that was just a temporary, although it lasted about a century, that was a temporary situation, as we discovered over the last couple of decades when uh, we entered a new era where now it was very hard for one parent to support the family in a lot of cases. Mothers started going to work for wages outside the home, and many families, two parents work. So 
So around the time when the economy was changing again into this sort of more complicated situation we have now, people began to look at fathers. You know, one of the good things, it's rough on families when both parents have to work sometimes, but one of the good things is some fathers in this transition have been able to spend more time with their kids, and suddenly they raise all kinds of questions. What are they doing there? How's that working out? (laughs) Sure, and and with the, the rise of the study of epigenetics, uh, and per, and paternal inheritance. That was one of my favorite parts of, of Do Fathers Matter, the things that can be passed on uh, transgenerationally. Uh, so can we talk a little bit about some of what you've discovered in, in terms of paternal inheritance in, in the studies? Sure. Well, there are a couple of different areas here. Um, one of them is uh, what happens at, at conception and during the development of the fetus uh, before birth. Uh, we, we, I think we like to think of this as a lovely, harmonious process, you know, DNA from the mother and DNA from the father come together, each contributes half, and, the, you know, the fetus grows in a very specific pattern and, you know, begins to look like a baby, more and more like a baby as we see through ultrasound and so forth, and it's, it's a wonderful, it's a miracle, and of course it is a miracle in, in some ways, it's a wonderful thing, and it brings great emotional satisfaction to parents and others involved. But, it, in fact, the genetics are much more complicated. Um, father's genes actually control a lot of what happens in the mother's body. So the father equips the fetus with genes that can do a couple of things, uh, genes that can alter the mother's blood pressure. So in that way, uh, operating through the placenta, the developing fetus has control. If it's not getting enough nutrients, it can release substances to boost its mother's blood pressure to pump more nutrients through the placenta to the fetus. And likewise, if it's not getting enough sugar, enough energy, carbohydrates, it can alter that, too, and force the mother to contribute more carbohydrates to the fetus. This is an amazing thing that the fetus can actually be in in control of some of these things. And one way we know that this happens, that some, some listeners I'm sure will understand, is that there are a couple of conditions that can happen to pregnant women. One is something called preeclampsia, in which they get dangerously high blood pressure. That's what happens when the fetus exerts too much control on the mother. So it can actually threaten the health of the mother and the fetus. The other is what's called gestational diabetes, women who've never had diabetes but develop it during pregnancy. And again, that's when the fetus's genes that it got from its father are, you know, going a little awry as they control the mother's blood sugar. So this is actually a tug of war between uh, father's genes and mother's genes. And in the ideal case, Things balance and everything turns out fine, and the baby is born healthy. But sometimes uh, it can go wrong. But very, I, I found that, as you did, I found that incredibly interesting to think of a tug of war going on between genes rather than a nice, lovely bonding. <laughs> well, well, I was actually thinking more specifically about the implications around uh, a father's uh, diet and lifestyle preconception. And we know that uh, there's all this emphasis on women and and. And mothers, obviously, and and what their diet and lifestyle is in for the growing fetus and in preparation for getting pregnancy. But we're now starting to also learn that that's going to have a big effect on wh- how genes are expressed uh, in a fetus based on the behavior yeah, of the father, even preconception. That's right, and um, you know, people have done studies. We I have some interesting things in the book about looking at different fathers' occupations, and some in some occupations dealing with some toxic chemicals. Um, and things, as you say, even before conception, uh, that raises the risk of certain ailments and disorders in their children. And <clears throat> this is not supposed to happen in classical genetics. You know, you inherit things from your parents and you pass them on to your kids. 
and whatever you live through in the meantime doesn't affect any of that. But, but the short answer is now we're finding that it does affect that. And, in fact, studies looking back um, at health records you know, over a century in Sweden, a little town way under the Arctic Circle, have shown that not only does this happen in sons, that grandfather's diet can affect their sons, <clears throat> excuse me, and that also continues to affect their grandsons. So we don't know how long, if this would continue indefinitely, but we now know that these, these things that, as you say, are called epigenetic changes are very important, and uh, a lot of people are now studying these to try to find out what's going on and how we can prevent some of the consequences. Well, it was uh, interesting. Some of the results were were a little mystifying even, the, that if a grandfather experienced hunger, that the mortality risk of the grandchild is decreased. Is decreased, yeah, right. You might think it was the other way, that if the grandfather had, had a rough time getting enough food to eat, that his progeny might suffer for that. But, but you're exactly right. Grandfathers who didn't get enough to eat during adolescence, their grandchildren um, did better at a lower mortality rate. So nobody yet knows what's going on there. I mean, the science is, is good and clear that shows there is this phenomenon. This is happening. But the next step will be to figure out why and how that is happening, which I, I will surely be following and probably writing about because I'm interested to know. Yeah, and, and some, of the, some of the studies on, on rodents actually seem to suggest the possibility of passing down emotional trauma genetically that, for instance, a startle response, a, fear, a specific type of fear response could be not a learned behavior from your parent or your grandparent, but could actually be also something that's passed down through gene expression. Right. And this is, I mean, uh, listeners who are familiar with this will be, you know, interested to know, I think, too, that, you know, this was, this thing first started to be discovered over probably over the last 10 years, maybe less than that. Um, you know, there was huge uh, reaction from other scientists saying, no, this is not possible. We know this isn't possible. Charles Darwin, I mean, uh, uh, Gregor Mendel, the father of genetics, said it wasn't possible, and Darwin, too, for that matter. Um, so it's been a huge revolution in science with all kinds of back and forth, which, um, you know, ultimately is beginning to resolve with the conclusion that, yeah, this stuff really does happen. We're talking today to author Paul Rayburn about his latest book, Do Fathers Matter? What Science is Telling Us About the Parent We've Overlooked. So, Paul, let's, let's talk about the changes that happen to fathers during pregnancy. There are actually, we're discovering hormonal changes, weight changes, um, all sorts of changes that are happening to the, the father of the child while the mother is pregnant. That's right. And uh, so it turns out women's no longer have a lock on all the hormonal changes involved with pregnancy. Uh, once we thought that they went through a lot, of, um, a lot of changes and men were more or less on the sidelines waiting for the birth, which was the big event, now we know that's not the case. So uh, some listeners may be aware that uh, it's not uncommon for men to gain weight during their wives' pregnancy or partner's pregnancy. And it's not just because they're both overeating, although that might be happening too. But in fact, there's a real connection there and a phenomenon where men will gain weight. And um, some, some men even develop a kind of a morning sickness because of their connection uh, with their spouse. And the, the weight gain thing, there's actually a really interesting example in the animal kingdom. We know that, that helps us believe what we see in, in, in human animals. Uh, there's a monkey called the titty monkey in uh, South America, little guy, and uh, he gains a lot of weight. The male gains a lot of weight when his um, partner is pregnant, and the reason is that when the offspring show up, and there are a group of them, um, 
when they're not nursing, he carries them. They, they spend their entire time on his back, and he carries them around. So he can lose 40% of his body weight after the, the litter is born. So he has to gain weight before birth, or he won't survive all this shuttling of these offspring around. So same kind of thing can happen in humans. The other thing, as you say, is that these hormonal changes uh, that occur in women are, are matched by things that occur in men. So when men are spending time and closely associated with their partner who's pregnant, they experience a sharp drop in testosterone. Now, testosterone is, you know, roughly associated with comp- uh, competitiveness and aggression and that sort of thing. It's not a simple link, but um, they, they are associated with one another. And the idea is that when testosterone falls during a woman's pregnancy, it falls in a man, that biology, his biology is preparing him to be a father, to be a little less competitive, a little less aggressive, and more nurturing and, and more available for this child who's about to arise. So it's a pretty neat system. And until very recently, nobody had any idea this thing was going on. And, and some of the studies uh, suggest that the more you hold your baby as a man, the, the lower your testosterone will go. Is that correct? Yes. So that's right. So play, holding the baby and playing with the baby, even when the kids are a little older, um, fathers who spend time with their kids playing, reading to them, all those things, um, have lower testosterone levels. They also, there's another hormone that kicks in here, and, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, and that's the hormone oxytocin, which is associated with bonding between individuals and emotional connections. And it turns out that when fathers spend a lot of time with their kids, their oxytocin rises. So that's that's the science uh, that's been measured and studied, and that's clear. It's also true, it works the other way, too. If fathers are given a little dose of oxytocin before playing with their children, they're much more engaged, much more active, and um, have a have a better play session. This has been seen in the laboratory. So that those are the scientific facts. My, my unscientific I guess that I think is kind of fun is that, you know, fathers who play with their kids are going to have higher oxytocin levels. Oxytocin is associated with binding, and it might just make them better husbands. It might improve their relationships with their spouses. So playing with kids is not only good for kids, it can have all kinds of consequences. So it sounds like it might actually create a a metabolic momentum that would reinforce itself. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that anybody has really looked at it in quite that way yet, but I'm sure people will want to because it seems like a, a, an obvious thing. In, in the chapter you have on child rearing in your in Do Fathers Matter, you talk about the way that fathers have different responses to the cries of infants than mothers, and also have uh, different uh, ways of interacting with with the infants. Can can you talk a little bit about that? I can. So we know that fathers um, <clears throat> are connected to, I think I think this is what you're uh, asking about. We know that fathers are connected to their infants because of some interesting work done at the University of Michigan by putting fathers into brain scanners <clears throat> in certain kinds of circumstances. So they would do it when fathers could listen to any baby cry. They would do it when fathers were listening to any obnoxious, unpleasant sound, which crying is one of those, but there are lots of others. And they would do it when fathers listened to their own babies cry. And there was no question that, you know, certain areas of the brain responded in each case, but there was a distinct pattern when fathers heard their own baby cry. And the increased activity occurred in a part of the brain associated with emotional connections and emotional behavior. So, again, there's a lot of work remains to sort out 
what's going on there, why that happens, but it's very clear that fathers know their own baby's cry and know it distinctly different from other babies' cries. And then what else did you ask? Oh, I, I was just interesting in different behavioral approaches to infants and and toddlers, oh, that fathers yeah. have a, a, as I don't think people would be surprised, more of a... Uh, potentially playful approach to to interacting with their kids. Right. So there's a few things. They, they definitely um, are more likely to roll around on the floor and, and engage in unstructured play and uh, throw the kids up in the cover. My book has a picture of a father throwing a child and possibly high in the air, which mothers and even some fathers would quake at that. But fathers do those kinds of things. They also are more likely to let their kids climb a little bit higher on the jungle gym and take a few more chances in situations like that. And then one interesting story I found that I thought really typifies a lot of this, that some people talk about fathers as being a kind of bridge to the outside world, because in many families, fathers are still the ones who go out and spend, spend time at work during the day. And one of the interesting things that happens when they, some researchers observe mothers and fathers in young, uh, in babies in swimming lessons. And the mothers tended to hold the babies uh, you know, in a kind of grip with the baby's breast against their breast, okay, the baby looking over their shoulder when they were in the pool with the babies. Fathers, more often than not, held the babies the other way around, face forward, you know, and with their backs to the father's bellies, um, looking out at the pool. And uh, these researchers thought that was an emblematic uh, thing, that, you know, mothers are, are, are sheltering a little bit more in that, in that case, and fathers are pointing the child toward the pool and the world out there. Now, we, we don't want to overdo this thing. This is not, does not explain all aspects of fathering and mothering, but it is one of those interesting little phenomena that, um, that, that do kind of capture some real thing that's happening there. And another interesting thing was a study on um, the different uh, timing of puberty in, in daughters, whether the father was present in the home or whether the father was absent. Right. So um, so we know that, you know, a big biological transition for young girls and, and boys, uh, but the interesting research here was done on girls, on daughters, is entering puberty. So it's, a, it's one of the huge life transitions. And, um, and a lot of things go on, a lot of physical changes, emotional changes, all those things. That we, that's old news. We know all about that. But it turns out that when a father is not present in a family... Uh, girls enter puberty at a significantly earlier age. Now, this doesn't mean because the father isn't there to give advice or the father isn't there to help take care of them, nothing like that. Whatever is going on, this is affecting biology that the girls can't control. The fathers can't control. Nobody can. The fact that the father is away, young girls' biology changes dramatically, so they enter puberty earlier. And those girls without fathers in the home are at increased uh, there's an increased likelihood they will engage in risky sexual behavior and an increased likelihood they will become pregnant as teenagers. And we know that those things uh, can make it difficult for a young girl to, to get established as an adult. Um, and uh, so it, it, so it's, what's unclear is how this works. And the speculation is that perhaps the father's pheromones or his scent, in other words, um, is picked up by the daughter's bodies, again, subconsciously, and that that signifies either that things are okay or things are not okay. And the, the speculation is that um, if a father is not present, girls may feel like they're in an insecure um, family situation, and 
the body's automatic response might be to enter puberty early, prepare them for, for pregnancy early so that they can get out of that insecure situation into their own families that might be more secure. So that part is speculation, but it seems to make sense that whatever it is that the ultimate explanation is, it's very clear we know now that very profound changes occur in teenage girls when their father is not in the house. I would imagine there might be some concern uh, around uh, discrimination, using this information improperly, the wrong people using this information to discriminate against people in non-traditional partnerships or or single parents, um, rather than just looking at this as one of many different things. There's, there's, uh, I, I was wondering if you address that in Do Fathers Matter? Uh, people who, who are single parents or, or, or have uh, two parents of the same gender. Yes, I, I do a little bit. Um, <clears throat> I was, there was plenty to write about, <clears throat> excuse me, two parent families with a mother and a father, enough, more than enough to fill a book. So that's mostly what I wrote about. But I did address a couple of things. One thing is that some of the experts I talked to think that single mothers, of which we have a lot, some after divorce, some because they've somewhat out divorced, but for a variety of circumstances, as, as we know, um, that <clears throat> what's important for them or can be important is to involve a male in the family. If they have a brother, a close friend, a neighbor, a cousin, anybody who can spend time with the kids, that's a helpful thing. Now, that's not going to do everything that a father would do but it will do some of that. And nobody has yet looked to see whether a stepfather or uh, a male figure can prevent some of these consequences related to puberty and so forth. Um, So I I, I certainly don't uh, discriminate against um, single mothers or gay families. Um, You know, there's, there's now a good body of research for both families with two fathers and families with two mothers that they can raise healthy and happy kids. There's no question about that. These questions about what roles the parents take and how they, you know, whether if you have a, a lesbian family with two mothers, do those girls go into puberty earlier? They're, you know, as far as I'm aware, nobody's looked at that level of detail in those families yet, but they will. And frankly, I think that, you know, the rest of us who are in, uh, you know, male-female families are probably going to learn a lot because I, I have talked to some, uh, I talked to a very interesting uh, lesbian couple a couple of years ago. And, you know, I was curious about, you know, does, does one of them pick up more of the traditional father roles and the other more of the mother or, or what? And, you know, what they told me and what I've read, uh, you know, about other couples is they feel like they don't have stereotypes, gender stereotypes that they have to confront and deal with. They're inventing things on their own because there isn't, you know, such a long tradition of um, gay families and being public about how they live and raise their kids. So... Um, so I think we're going to learn, learn a lot from them as they work out their own ways of dealing with all these, you know, child-rearing issues. And, and certainly any upside of biologically of having a, a father in the home is overshadowed by uh, the downside if you have a, a bad father, uh, abusive, or, or a father, or, or there's sexual violence. Yes, that's that's right. And I didn't say too much about that except to say, look, you know, we, we all know that. We know what's going on there. Somebody asked me in, in an interview, uh, you know, what fathers can do that's bad for children. And I said, well, not, not much except for that. You know, uh, sexual abuse or other kinds of emotional or physical abuse can be horrific uh, for kids, as we know. So, um, <clears throat> so you know, I, that, that's, to me, again, a subject of another 
book, and of course it's been the subject of many books sure. already. Um, but yes, that it's, it's absolutely worth noting that uh, there are circumstances where fathers can be very uh, not only unhelpful but dangerous. So, so what uh, what's interesting in the book also is that I mean we find all these changes that happen in the father during pregnancy, and we find that the behavior and diet and lifestyle of the father and the grandfather can be passed down through generations, and also that fathers potentially contribute uh, a different uh, interactive approach that actually seems to be beneficial around language development. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet we don't see a big influence on survival with the presence or absence of a father. How do we explain that paradox? Well, it's it's a little bit unclear. It's tricky, and I put it in the book because I, I, you know, I wanted to be clear that I was looking at all the evidence and being fair and how I assessed it. So, you know, as you say, there's one big study that looked at a lot of different societies done by a couple of anthropologists, and that was the question: if fathers are fathers are such a big deal, and we think they're so important and contribute so much, then kids ought to do better if fathers are there than if fathers aren't there. So what they found was that the fathers had little or no effect on the children's mortality rate. So that's important. Mortality is something we want to avoid, premature mortality in kids. And if fathers don't have much of an effect, uh, that's an important thing to note, which, which I did. Um, but that's different from saying that fathers in the home are going to, you know, maybe more likely to have kids whose language develops more quickly and have, you know, larger vocabulary or kids who do better in school or kids who are more socially competent as adults or kids who have less risk of disease or mental illness as adults because their fathers didn't have mental illness and, and, and on and on and on. There's so many things in the book. So fathers may not affect the mortality rate is the short answer, but they clearly affect a lot of things about their children's lives. Um, and uh, do you have a website that you could point our listeners to, Paul? I do. It's paulrayburn.com. The last name is R-A-E-B-U-R-N. And people can find out more about the book. They can get a free excerpt if they sign up for the newsletter and uh, find out where to buy it. And is there any any ongoing research right now that you're, that's particularly got you interested in, in waiting for the results? Well, not a particular study, but I can say that an area that I'm quite interested in is the family courts and divorce law and so forth. Um, too many courts are still treating, you know, rubber stamping, you know, mother custody and treating fathers as breadwinners and not much else. And it's just so at odds with what we now know about fathers that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping, half hoping that uh, some uh, wealthy philanthropist will hear one of these things or see the book and say, you know, I'm going to buy copies for all the family court judges in my state um, so that they can see what's important here about fathers. That, that's a problem. I think it's, I fear that it will be a long time before the family courts catch up with what we now know about the importance of fathers. Well, thanks for being on the program today, Paul. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. We are talking today to author Paul Rayburn, the author of Do Fathers Matter? What Science is Telling Us About the parent we've overlooked. You've been listening to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naming, your host. Stay tuned for the rest of the Monday morning radio zine.